Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we study this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, Volume 1. We're at the very end of this book right now in this program. We're in the Frequently Asked Questions section where there's additional content that really helps you to see the path to enlightenment more clearly. So we're gonna cover these today in our class. There's 11 of those frequently asked questions. And some of these questions are probably questions that you have, or you might've had at some point, and you'd like to get my perspective on what these questions are and what the answers are. So I'm gonna be sharing that with you today. And then there's some additional content towards the end of the book that is explaining how to determine when you've attained enlightenment and some other things that I'm going to just kind of share with you in terms of helping to wrap up the content in the book. Next week on Sunday, we're gonna be having class to cover what's called the five hindrances. This isn't actually in volume one of the book, but it's something that I feel is really important to cover at the end of the group learning program. These are the five hindrances that are gonna hinder you from attaining enlightenment. They're obstacles, they're kind of roadblocks, and it's important to understand the solutions of how to get over them. So I'm gonna explain what they are and the solutions of how to get over them next week in our Sunday class. So welcome to today's class. Really pleased that you're here today. As we go, I'm gonna open up to any questions that you guys have on the frequently asked questions as I'm explaining those. So the way that you'll ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you like. So thank you again for being here, and let's go ahead and jump right into class. So one of the most frequently asked questions that I hear from students or perspective students or people that are interested in looking at the Buddhist teachings is, how do I become a Buddhist? This is a very common question that I hear very frequently from people that are interested in learning and progressing in understanding the Buddhist teachings. Well, it's important to understand that the Buddha himself was not a Buddhist, that this term didn't actually exist during his lifetime. So Gautama Buddha, the person who we admire and respect for sharing these teachings into the world over 2,500 years ago, was not a Buddhist. This term actually came much later after his death as people were interested to kind of associate, you know, whether they were practicing these teachings or not. And what I would encourage someone to do is not to necessarily identify with being a Buddhist, but instead just look at it as you're learning teachings that are helping you to progress 
to understand a better way of life. Because that's essentially what the Buddha said when he awoke into enlightenment and he started sharing the teachings, is he didn't say, I discovered a new religion and now everyone needs to be a Buddhist and label yourself as a Buddhist. He didn't do that. He essentially said, I discovered a better way of life and he started sharing the teachings. It was after his death that people started to label themselves as Buddhist. And this can actually be a problematic situation if you identify with being a Buddhist and now you go out into the world with that identification because if you hold on to that in the mind whenever you hear somebody say something wonderful and outstanding about Buddhists you're going to get these pleasant feelings these conditioned feelings of oh wow look these people really respect Buddhists I'm a Buddhist, so wow, I feel so great. And then if you're in an environment where people are talking in negative ways or derogatory ways about Buddhists, then if you identify with that, you're going to have painful feelings. These conditioned painful feelings of sadness or anger, frustration are going to arise in the mind. So it's better to just not identify with whether you are Buddhist or not. You might be learning Buddhist teachings. You might be learning the Buddhist teachings. You're looking to understand this path to enlightenment, that's where the real benefit is, is understanding how to actually progress to enlightenment. That's what all of these teachings are about, is learning the path to enlightenment. And you can do that without this label of being a Buddhist. And all too often, you know, people in different aspects of life, we adopt these labels. You know, I am a Buddhist. I am a Christian. I am a Muslim. I'm a Hindu. I'm this. I'm that. And then that means we're different and we shouldn't associate with each other or that we should disagree with each other or fight with each other. And this can be problematic in our life too. So if we drop all those labels and we just realize that we're a human being, then we can associate with all beings and not have to live up to any particular label of one thing or another. So that would be my suggestion is to not consider that there's any particular process or rites or rituals or ceremonies or anything like this to become a Buddhist. Instead, you can choose at any point to start learning and practicing these teachings. And for those of you guys that are been learning with me for any length of time, you know, that's what you're choosing to do. And there's never a time where you'll hear me say, you know, are you ready to convert to being a Buddhist now? You know, this isn't something that we do in this tradition. This is a, a way of life. It's a better way of life. And you can do that better without having this label of whether you're a Buddhist or not. The second one is, do I need to give up all my possessions, occupation, and relationships to attain enlightenment? This is a very common question, and I think where it comes from is a lot of people, depending on which tradition you're coming out of or what tradition you've been exposed to in the past, you might have been taught that you are to kind of model the conduct and the behavior and the lifestyle of the individual who was the original teacher. So if you learned Christian teachings, for example, you might have been taught to mimic the life of Jesus and do everything that Jesus does and kind of model your life after Jesus and be more like Jesus. So oftentimes people see what the Buddha did 
and they think that they need to model their life after what the Buddha did. And the Buddha did give up everything. He walked away from the royal palace. He no longer decided to become the king. He walked away from his relationships, going out for six years on this independent journey. Eventually, he came back, and he had a lot of wisdom to be able to share with his family and his wife and his stepmother and his cousins and his son and other people joined him as part of learning and practicing to get to enlightenment. So he did walk away from those relationships, but you don't need to give up all of these things in terms of you know, just living in a tent somewhere in the forest in order to attain enlightenment. What you need to do in order to attain enlightenment is you need to train the mind to mentally let go. So you're going to have potentially a car or maybe a house or a place to live. You're going to have clothing. You're going to have relationships with people. You're going to most likely, if you're a household practitioner, going to need to have an occupation. And if you're an ordained practitioner, you can maybe even think of that as your occupation or your lifestyle. We're going to do things in the world. We're going to have possessions. We're going to have things. But it's how the mind relates to these things, which is important. So most people in the world nowadays have a mobile phone. And if we think of this as my mobile phone, then when it breaks or it gets lost or it gets stolen or something like this, then the mind with craving, desire, attachment is going to have discontentedness. Whereas if we don't think of this as mine, you know, my possessions or my occupations or my relationships, then the mind can be trained to let go where you can still have possessions that you use on a regular basis, but you realize that they're not mine. You're essentially renting them, so to speak. They're just kind of here for the present moment and they can be gone at any point. And if you have a certain occupation, same thing, you're performing that occupation now, but it's not permanent. It can change at any point in time. And same thing with your relationships is that you can enjoy your relationships. You can have relationships with your parents, your siblings, your friends, coworkers, life partners, children, things like this. But what's important is you don't cling to these relationships and attempt to hold on to them very tightly because if you do, you're going to just sabotage the relationship and crush it. So what this path is all about, in addition to other things, is learning how you can have possessions and occupation and relationships and do that without craving desire attachment, training the mind to not grasp and cling and hold on to these things so tightly. Number three here is what is reincarnation and rebirth? Are they the same things? Depending on what books you read, depending on what conversations you're in, depending on how you interact in the world with Gautama Buddha's teachings, you might hear people using this word reincarnation as it relates to the Buddha's teachings. And you might hear other people using the term rebirth. So let me help you understand what these things are and what the actual Buddha taught. Reincarnation is not what the Buddha actually taught. He taught the cycle of rebirth. Reincarnation is something that people are describing and talking about, but they don't realize that the Buddha actually didn't teach this. What reincarnation is based on is it's based on having a soul and that this soul is permanent and it keeps coming back over multiple reincarnations. And essentially the way it's viewed is that this person is the same person as they were in previous lives, 
but it's just a new body with this soul. Well, this conflicts with Gautama Buddha's teachings because he never actually taught whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul. He left it as an undeclared teaching. So he didn't teach that we have a soul and he didn't teach that there isn't a soul either. So the whole premise of reincarnation doesn't fit from that perspective of the Buddhist teachings. It also doesn't fit from the perspective of the universal truth of impermanence. The very first and beginning teaching of Gautama Buddha's is the universal truth of impermanence. You wouldn't be able to make any progress at all really on this path without truly understanding the universal truth of impermanence, that things are constantly changing and there's not this fixed way of being. So if we think that there's this permanent soul that lasts forever, then this would be a misunderstanding of the universal truth of impermanence and this conflicts with the Buddhist teachings and why he didn't teach that this necessarily exists. It also conflicts with the teachings of the universal truth of non-self that you've heard in this program at different times that I've introduced you and shared details on the universal truth of non-self that reincarnation would conflict with that. So these three major conflicts with the way that reincarnation is taught it conflicts and is completely opposite of what the Buddha actually taught. Instead, what the Buddha taught is the cycle of rebirth. Or one of the ways that I suggest you think about this is the cycle of new existence. Because what the cycle of rebirth is, is that there's in this existence, there's a body and there's a mind that has come together for this existence. But at the end of this existence, when there's death, the body and the mind will separate. And essentially, there will be a new existence if there's rebirth, but that new existence is going to be a new body and a new mind. It's not actually being reborn into something that is the same as now. The only thing that transfers from one life to the next is craving, desire, attachment, whatever cravings are in the mind of this being that you are now. If they're still craving at the end of this life, it will get transferred to the new life and any residual memories. There's residual memories that move from one life to the next. But there's nothing about this physical body or the construct of this mind that is going to transfer to a new being. So you can think of it as the cycle of new existence. Even though we typically describe it as the cycle of rebirth, there's really nothing being reborn from one life to the next. So I think of it as the cycle of new existence. Reincarnation and the cycle of rebirth are very different. And what the Buddha taught is the cycle of rebirth. When you dive into the words of the Buddha, this is what he described, this is what he taught, that there's this physical body that we are human now, there's this mind that comes together for this unique existence. And then once there's death, those things separate and they no longer are going to ever be rejoined again in any form or fashion, that if there's a rebirth, it's a completely new existence, a new body and a new mind. This fourth question is, can I be a Buddhist without believing in rebirth? The answer to this, the short answer is absolutely yes. Well, of course, the first question that I answered was, you know, let's just drop the label of Buddhist and think of ourselves as a human being. So that makes it easy that you can be a Buddhist without believing in rebirth. But more importantly, 
we also shouldn't believe anything as you've heard me share at different times in this program and different interactions that you've had with me as a teacher and and all the resources that i share i don't suggest students believe anything whatsoever because belief isn't going to lead to enlightenment it's only when you independently verify the teachings that you acquire wisdom and that's what's going to actually lead to your enlightenment so not believing in rebirth is really wise and what I suggest for students to do is to really set the whole cycle of rebirthing to the side, particularly if you haven't learned about this at any point in your past, because oftentimes what people are taught is that we only just get one life. And it's really challenging for someone to understand the cycle of rebirth when you're trying to understand all these other teachings like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, you're developing a meditation practice, you're learning about the natural law of gamma, you're learning about what is merit, you're learning about the three poisons and you know so forth and so on, all these different teachings. Those are the teachings that are gonna liberate the mind and get you to the point where there's no longer any discontentedness in the mind. What happened in the past in terms of the cycle of rebirth? It's in the past. Whatever may or may not happen in the future, it's in the future. You haven't yet got to that point to experience that yet. What's important is that in this life that you focus on the core and central path, which is those three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, and so forth and so on. Focusing on those that's what's going to actually liberate the mind and get it to enlightenment. You could learn the cycle of rebirth inside, outside, backwards and forwards. And if you did that, your mind isn't going to necessarily be any more liberated. It's really important that you focus on the core and central path. So you can set aside the whole cycle of rebirth and get to that later. You know, whether it's a year from now, two years, three years, who knows when you might decide to approach that. But having the foundation and the deep wisdom about these other core and central teachings and having seen progress with those teachings, that's when you'll be ready to potentially approach the cycle of rebirth and understand it in a more detailed sense. So in this book series, there's 13 books. The cycle of rebirth in the realms of existence is volume 11. And it's there for a reason because it's really something that you can put to the side and focus on it when it's time to do that. So don't feel like you need to believe anything at all, including the cycle of rebirth. Don't feel like you need to adopt this label of being a Buddhist. And don't feel that you need to tackle this whole area of the cycle of rebirth at any point at the beginning of your journey on this path, because that's really not the best place to approach it. What I usually suggest people do is use the cycle of rebirth for motivation. If you've experienced any kind of sorrow or misery or heartache or any kind of grief in this life, use that as saying, you know, I really am not interested in coming back to experience this all over again, again and again and again and again. So let me just take the Buddha on his word on face value that this is there for a reason. He obviously didn't teach all these other teachings that lead to liberation of mind and just slip in the cycle of rebirth. I can tell you with 100% certainty that the cycle of rebirth is the truth, but you don't need to know that right now at this moment in order to get to liberation. So if you just kind of 
look at the Buddhist teachings on face value and say, okay, he had all this wisdom that surely is improving the condition of my mind. And I can see the condition of my mind improving over the last six months or the last year or three years or however long you've been learning. Then just understand that the cycle of rebirth is there. You can approach it at some point in the future and perhaps use it as motivation that you're not interested in coming back to experience any kind of grief or sorrow or sadness or any kind of misery that you've experienced in this life. You're not interested in repeating that continuously over and over. So let's do what we need to do now in the present moment so that that doesn't occur. This fifth one here is all about taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. This particular question comes up where people will ask, you know, what does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha? And is there a ceremony to do so? First, let me explain to you what these three things are. The Buddha, of course, is the individual who lived over 2,500 years ago. He awoke into enlightenment through his own independent journey. He shared the teachings for the remaining part of his life, 45 years. Countless people attained enlightenment during that lifetime. And then he left the teachings in a condition after his lifetime that countless more people could attain enlightenment after his death. Those are the three primary criteria of a Buddha. They awaken to enlightenment without the help of any teachers or any guides. They share the teachings for the rest of their life with countless beings attaining enlightenment throughout that lifetime. And then they leave the teachings in a condition that countless more people can attain enlightenment after their death. This is what a Buddha is. The Dhamma, this is a Pali word that means the teachings. So the teachings that the Buddha shared, this is the Dhamma, or you might've heard the word Dharma, which is Sanskrit. But I tend to use the Pali words because that's what the original source teachings are in. So the Dhamma are the teachings. The Sangha, this is the community of practitioners. This is all of us. We are a Sangha. We are a community, right? And this is referred to as the triple gem or the triple jewel. And the Buddha really emphasized having confidence in all of these three things, because without having these three things, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. You need to have confidence in the Buddha. You need to have access to his teachings and you need to be part of a community. With these three things, you have what you need in order to attain enlightenment. If you only had confidence in the Buddha, but you didn't have access to his teachings and you weren't part of a community, you wouldn't actually be able to get to enlightenment. And likewise, if you just had access to his teachings, you wouldn't be able to actually attain enlightenment because you don't have confidence in the Buddha and you, you aren't part of a community. And then likewise, if you were part of a community of practitioners, but there wasn't confidence in the Buddha, there wasn't access to the true teachings, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment if you're just a member of a community of practitioners. So you need to have all three of these things, is confidence in the Buddha, access to the teachings, and being part of a community. And that confidence in the Buddha typically will build the more that you learn the teachings, you reflect on them, and you practice them, and you see the condition of the mind gradually improving, this confidence will slowly build and you will erode any kind of doubt you might have about the Buddha because you can see the benefit of the teachings in the condition of the mind and the condition of your life. In terms of, you know, what is refuge? What does the word refuge mean? This means protection. 
you know, having something to protect you. And oftentimes people say, you know, take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, in the Sangha, or take refuge in the Buddha, the teachings, in the community. And what this means is that the more that you build your confidence in the Buddha, the more you understand the teachings and you're practicing those, the more that you're part of a community, your mind will gradually become protected in that this sorrow and this despair and this displeasure, this grief that you may have experienced in the past will gradually diminish and the mind will be protected because essentially you've learned the teachings, you've reflected and you've practiced and now you're practicing in such a way that your discontentedness is slowly diminishing and as you attain enlightenment, it completely is eliminated and now the mind is protected. But it's not literally protected by the Buddha the teachings or the community, you're doing the work in order to ensure that the mind is protected by these things. So that's what it means to take refuge or receive this protection where you're protecting the mind by having confidence in the Buddha, access to the teachings, learning and practicing those, and then being part of a community. There is no ceremony to actually take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha as part of what the Buddha taught during his lifetime. Now, 2,500 years later, there are people along the way that have created ceremonies. These are rites, rituals, and ceremonies that they say, okay, you attend this ceremony, you do these things at the ceremony, and now you've taken refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. But this is something that came after the death of the Buddha. If somebody went to one of those ceremonies and did these rites, rituals, and ceremonies, but then they went outside and started speaking harsh and aggressive to people. They didn't meditate. They weren't learning the path to enlightenment. That ceremony has done nothing for you because that ceremony can't fix the mind. That ceremony can't protect the mind. You can't create a refuge or protection of the mind through rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. It doesn't work that way. A student would need to be determined, dedicated, and diligent in developing their practice, that's where they actually experience this protection or this refuge. So even though you might hear people talk about ceremonies, you might be invited to a ceremony, you might hear about ceremonies going on in order to take refuge in the Buddha, the teachings, and the Sangha, this is something that came much later after the Buddha's death and is something that people practice today but it's not part of the original source teaching. So you don't need to go out anywhere and actually do this ceremony that people are doing nowadays. You can actually do what the Buddha taught, which is just start learning, start reflecting and start practicing. And that's how you really take refuge in the Buddha, the teachings and the community by protecting the mind through training the mind. And then when the mind's well-disciplined, having this wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, then the mind is protected. You've taken refuge in the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have about any of these five things that we just talked about. Remember, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. Hello, Richard. As for the second question, a, uh, one doesn't need to give up all positions and occupations. Does this mean that we can see a, an enlightened businessman, an enlightened uh, king or president? 
Absolutely. And as these teachings spread more and more into the world, we'll see people who are enlightened that are political appointees or elected in political positions. We'll see presidents. We'll see business people that are enlightened. And these people will be functioning very differently than what we see in our society today. Today, we see people in all those same positions functioning in ways that are harmful to themselves and harmful to others. But as people learn these teachings and practice them more deeply, you can surely be a business person, you can be a president, you can be a politician, you can be a stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, you can be a volunteer, you can do anything and everything. In fact, this path will prepare you to do anything and everything that you might decide that you're interested in pursuing as part of this life. And doing it without the pollution of craving, anger, and ignorance, you'll be very, very successful in anything that you choose to approach. I've met taxi drivers here in Thailand that are enlightened or very close to it. So you can do anything and everything that you'd like to do. On Zoom, Chris has a question. He writes, Teacher David, if the consciousness or a soul doesn't follow, how would you have memories from previous lives? Can you help me understand? I know this might not be our primary focus, but can you give a brief answer since you're talking about it now? Thank you, sir. Sure. The way that I think about it is I think about cardboard box A and cardboard box B, and these are two different existences. So say Chris is cardboard box A, and let's just say you're going to be reborn. We don't know that, but let's just say you are reborn into a new existence and you're Susie, you're a female named Susie. Well, at the end of this life of Chris, this cardboard box A, if there's craving in the mind, there's going to be rebirth. Craving is the fuel that causes rebirth. So at death, is there any more craving in the mind? If the answer is yes, then there's going to be rebirth. So now this craving, all the different cravings that are in the mind of Chris and residual memories get transferred into this new cardboard box. It's like literally if you had contents in one cardboard box and they get picked up and just dropped into this other cardboard box. The two cardboard boxes are different color, different shape, different size, different texture, completely different. But there's just a transferring of craving and residual memories into this new cardboard box. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's go to Nick. Thank you, Boston. Hello, teacher. We have a question from Amina on Facebook. She writes, what is the best way to find balance between maintaining friendships with people not in the Sangha and not on the path? Many of my friends support and respect the choice I have made to practice the Buddhist teachings. They are not interested for themselves and I accept and respect their choices. Is this in conflict or no? No, this is not a conflict at all because it's not possible for everyone in your life to be on this path. That would be permanence, right? So you're going to interact with people who are not part of this path and who aren't interested perhaps in pursuing this path. This is a lot of what we're going to be sharing in this summer's retreat in the USA is we're going to be talking about how to create harmony in relationships. And one of the sessions that we're going to be teaching is how to 
be a practitioner of these teachings in a world of non-practitioners because now the vast majority of the world is not practicing these teachings. So you're going to be interacting with people who aren't practicing. And how do we do that in the best way? Well, the first one is something that I think you're kind of alluding to in your question, which is don't expect the people around us to learn and practice these teachings. We can choose to do that as part of our life, and that's our choices. But if we crave or desire or expect other people, if we want them to practice these teachings, then it's only going to lead to our own discontentedness. Every individual has to choose for themselves to approach these teachings and move forward to learn, reflect, and practice. So if we let go of any kind of expectation or wants or anything like that, then we can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with anybody and everybody. So when there's people in your life that aren't practicing these teachings, you'll be able to see it. You'll see it very clearly. You'll see the craving. You'll see the anger. You'll see the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. You'll see the struggles and difficulties, things that are just appear so easy for you when they're telling you their problems and their difficulties. In your mind, you can just see how simple and how easy this is, but yet they're really struggling with it because they lack the wisdom to understand how to make wise decisions in these certain situations. And this is where we can develop and maintain our loving kindness, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, and our compassion, our concern for the misfortune of others. And we need to realize that these are beings that are choosing to continue to reside in the craving, anger, and ignorance, particularly if you've mentioned to them once or twice about these teachings and they've chosen not to pursue them, then they're choosing to stay in that darkness, so to speak. And they just haven't maybe experienced enough suffering yet to choose that, yes, I would like to improve the condition of the mind in this life. So by not being attached to others and wanting them to be a certain way or on this path, this will be really helpful for you because an enlightened being can function and interact with anybody and everybody. There's nobody that an enlightened being wouldn't be able to get along with, so to speak. Somebody else might take exception to you. Somebody else who's off this path, who is in the darkness, they might be angry and frustrated at you. But in terms of an enlightened being, an enlightened being will just have loving kindness and compassion for that person, not judge them for their harshness and their aggressiveness and just reside with this loving kindness and compassion. An enlightened being is open to any and all relationships that someone might be interested to forge with us in terms of friendships and things like this. So we can get along with anybody and everybody. So if you're not seeing that that's possible, that's actually really good work for you. So if there's somebody in your community or at your child's school or somewhere else where you find it's a real struggle to get along with this person, like your mind is struggling, it's actually really helpful for you to spend time around that person in terms of, you know, as long as it's not like they're into really unwholesome things that would cause you difficulties if you got involved in that and associated with that. But if it's just somebody that you're like, I don't like their personality or I don't like the way that they look or I don't like this or I don't like that. It's actually really helpful for the mind to train that you can associate and be friendly with all beings. Teacher David, um, follow up to that. Enlightened beings can also choose not to um, um, do business or get associated with someone when they see craving. 
Like for example, uh, in, in Thailand, the uh, the tea lady. Like when we see this craving, we don't have to, you know, engage, and then have unwholesome results. Can can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So you know, everything that we experience in this life is based on our own choices and decisions. And if there's people that we are around that we feel that it wouldn't be wise for us to be involved with, we can choose to not associate with certain people and do that without judgment and do that with loving kindness and compassion. So in the case that Nick's talking about, we call her the tea lady, that when Nick came to Thailand, he showed up in a taxi and I helped him get to his room. And as soon as we stopped on the street, there was a lady sitting at a business in the front. And I mean, we didn't even put our bags down out of the taxi. And she was like, come drink some tea, come drink some tea, come sit with me, come sit with me. And she had this craving and desire for us to come into her business and sit down and have tea with her. I mean, literally, we hadn't even set the bags down on the street yet. And my response to her was like, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate your offer. We're going to go check into the hotel first. You know, we'll, we'll talk with you later. And so I just kind of delayed that situation and kind of stepped away from it in a very polite and kind way. And then we went about our checking in, getting Nick's bag situated in the hotel and so forth. And then when we came out of the hotel, we were walking down the street, I think, to go get something to eat or go take a walk in the village. And as soon as we came out, once again, she latched on and she was like, come, 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 come have tea, come have tea. I was like, oh, we're kind of busy right now. You know, we'll talk to you another time. We're going to go get something to eat. And we just kept walking. So in that situation, we were polite, we were kind, we were friendly, we were respectful, but we just chose not to be involved in that situation because we saw all this craving and desire, this attachment of wanting us to be there. Whereas if we maybe had sat down and we had engaged with her and done all those things, then that craving is just going to come stronger and stronger. And every single time Nick comes out of his hotel, if she's there, she's going to try to grab him to do that. So initially seeing that high amount of craving, desire, attachment, I chose to kind of, you know, postpone that and really not engage with that and instead just go about our day and doing the things that we needed to do. And this is a way that going back to this question about refuge and protecting the mind in that situation i know that we didn't do anything harmful we didn't do anything bad instead we were polite kind friendly respectful we just chose to not sit down and have tea and go about our day and therefore nothing harmful is going to come to us where in the situation if we would have sat down and allowed this attachment to really become engrossed and form to Nick and to myself. And then we're going to have to deal with that for multiple days after that, where this person is just going to keep latching on and latching on and latching on. So there are situations where if you see someone who has a lot of craving or has a lot of anger, or there's a lot of ignorance, unknowing of true reality, the Buddha teaches that you know, we can choose who we engage with, who we spend time with as our friends. And he suggests that we cultivate wholesome relationships in our life. But you need to learn how to do this without judging the other person. Judgment would be to look down on somebody or look up to somebody thinking that you're either superior or inferior. Or judging someone would be trying to judge that person, whether they're wholesome or unwholesome. And then judging them as being maybe bad or good based on your judgment, where there's discernment, where you can make wise decisions. 
and you can use discernment making wise decisions while still maintaining loving kindness and compassion so in this situation with the tea lady there was never a time that i said to nick like oh this lady is unwholesome we shouldn't be around her she's bad she's gonna hurt us or you know so forth and so on i just address the situation, let her know like, oh, thank you so much. We appreciate your invite. We're going to go have something to eat now. You know, we just kept going about our day. So you can choose to participate with business relationships or personal relationships based on what you know to be a wise choice so that you can maintain this wholesomeness. And it doesn't mean that you push away people that you feel are into unwholesome things, but instead you just continue to practice being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful through all the steps of the Eightfold Path to include right intention, right speech, and right action while you're practicing loving kindness and compassion, not looking down on people and not looking up to people, but you're just making wise choices about who you would like to involve in your life and who you would like to be involved with because while other people might be making decisions that are affecting them, if you choose to do business with somebody, for example, be a business partner with somebody, and they're into a lot of unwholesome things and they make a lot of unwholesome decisions, that's going to affect you. It's their decisions to do unwholesome things, but it's your decision to be their business partner. So if you choose to be associated with people that are into a lot of unwholesome things, then those decisions that they're making in a situation like a business partner or a life partner or things like this, it's going to affect you. So with wise decision making, you can choose who to involve in your life and who you would like to be involved with. Thank you, Teacher David. You're welcome. Thanks, sir. No more questions. Okay, let's continue on looking at more questions that people ask me all the time. And you'll see these in different places and different venues. Number six is, what is our purpose in life? What is the purpose of our human existence? This is a question that's really asked to a lot of different spiritual leaders in the world and different people will reply in different ways. You can see the very long explanation and detailed explanation that I give on all of these questions, including this one in the book. And I really suggest that if you haven't read these frequently asked questions yet, that you actually read the book because there I can go into a lot more detail than what I share in these classes. And I just kind of extrapolate out some of the key points. Well, the reason why the mind is interested in understanding what is our purpose in life or what is the purpose of our human existence is because we've essentially ascended in this realm of beings to the point where we're essentially the dominant beings on this planet. At one time, human beings were not the dominant being on this planet. There used to be things that were much bigger and badder than us in the world and that we weren't the, the biggest, baddest being on this earth and this planet. But now we've really populated the world. We've got all these systems like food systems and educational systems and medical systems and all these things to ensure our survival and our continuation on this planet. So it's really come into modern times that we kind of sit around and think about, well, what's our real purpose here? Because if you go back to perhaps cave person days where, you know, we were hitting rocks together and we were rubbing sticks and trying to figure out how to eat and cultivate food and things like this, 
I don't think that those people were probably sitting around thinking, you know, what's our purpose here? What are we supposed to be doing? Those people were probably just interested in surviving. They were like, you know, what is this food? Can I eat this? Can I not eat this? You know, how do I warm the body? How do I put clothes on this body in order to keep it warm? You know, human beings at one point were just looking out for survival. But it's later as we've developed into this supreme being, essentially, not like God, but this kind of being that is really taken over this planet that we sit around and we look around like, what's our real purpose here? So it's kind of like the ego that is there constantly telling us that we should have a purpose and that we are the kind of ultimate being on this planet. We're the dominant being on this planet. We're kind of the master of this planet. And our ego wants there to be a purpose. We want to have this significance. But when you look at this from afar and you look at it even in more detail, you can see that there really isn't a true purpose for us to be here. That yes, we have a job, we have hobbies, we have activities that we do, we spend time with friends and family, but all of that culminates into our ultimate death and we just kind of leave. It's just an impermanent life for 80 to 100 years. We exist and then we no longer exist after that. And 100 years from now, 200 years from now, nobody's going to remember who you are, who you were. You know, there might be a small collection of people right at the end of your life that there's a certain group of people that know who you were and what you did. But, you know, within a few years or a few decades, you know, that's all in the past. Because think about how many people we know of from a few hundred or a few thousand years ago. Very few. You know, you can probably count them on your hands of people who you really, truly are aware of and know that existed and understand what they did during their lifetime. It's very few. So with all these billions of people in the world, we're often taught that we need to have this significance. We need to leave our mark on society. We need to change the world, so to speak. And this is a real burden to carry around. If we think that that's what our real purpose is in this world, is that we need to change the world gosh, that's an enormous task for anybody to partake in. So if you let go of all of that and don't carry that burden and just understand that there really is no purpose, there's nothing here that your mind should be interested to cling on to and hold on to. If you develop this significance or this purpose or you want to change the world and leave your mark on society, this is all clinging and wanting the world to be a certain way. And it means you're going to continue to exist in this world and continue to have discontentedness over and over and over again. But if you let go of this burden of needing to have a purpose or wanting to leave your mark on society, your mind can be much more peaceful and much more at ease. So I would suggest that there is no purpose here, that it's better to just see it that way, and then you can let go so much easier. That if you look at the world and just say, yeah, there's no purpose for me to be here. Let me get out of here. Let me escape this whole cycle of rebirth. In order to do that, I need to train the mind to acquire this wisdom and eliminate discontentedness. And having done so, then I won't have to come back to a life of nothing, that there's nothing here. Well, if you're not satisfied with that answer and you really would like a purpose and you really are interested to have some kind of purpose in this life, then what I would suggest that you do is make it your purpose to attain enlightenment. And that's your purpose in this life. 
whether we work or what hobbies we do or the relationships we have, these are all just kind of fulfilling our time and ensuring that we can sustain our life through an income, through having wholesome relationships that are meaningful and fulfilling to us in this life. But the real purpose is to experience enlightenment so that you don't have to keep coming back to this nothingness all over again, again and again and again. So if you need a purpose in life, I would suggest that you adopt that purpose, that without craving desire attachment, that you pursue it as a goal, an objective or an interest that you would like to experience enlightenment in this life. And having done so, then you won't come back to a life of nothingness. Number seven is, can I exercise the physical body and still attain enlightenment? This question typically comes from people understanding that ordained practitioners will typically not really exercise in the way that maybe a household practitioner does in terms of like lifting weights or swimming or doing like real extensive physical exercise. And again, this comes from the mindset of, well, whatever the ordained practitioners are doing, that's what we should be doing. And the answer to that is no, that's not true that you shouldn't be doing necessarily all the same things that the ordained practitioners are doing because it's a different lifestyle. So they live their lifestyle in one way because of the lifestyle that they chose. And a household practitioner is living a lifestyle in a different way. But both of these types of individuals can still experience enlightenment. So even though you might learn that ordained practitioners don't exercise, you still can as a household practitioner. The reason why ordained practitioners don't exercise is because they are eating the food of household practitioners. And if they exercise, they would burn a whole lot more calories than they do in their normal lifestyle. So if they were doing extensive amount of exercise, they would need to be eating a lot more food, which would put more responsibility on the household practitioners to provide that food. So they only walk for alms once a day. They walk down the street and any household practitioners that would like to offer them food, they can offer them food. And then they just eat whatever they're offered. Whereas if they were exercising, they would have to take in a lot more calories than just that one meal or two meals a day that they might eat from that one alms round. So the way that ordained practitioners ensure the health of the body is they train the mind, of course, through the Buddhist teachings, but then they go on these long walks. The Buddha used to do a lot of walking during his lifetime. So ordained practitioners will typically do walking, and this is a way to maintain their physical health, but they don't exercise in terms of like a treadmill or a stair stepper or lifting weights or any kind of workout programs or things like this. But it would be really wise for a household practitioner to do those things if you would like to maintain the physical health of the body, because we have plenty of research that shows that these kind of things are very helpful to the physical body. It doesn't mean you have to, it doesn't mean you're required to, but you can if you would like to improve the health of the physical body. What's important though with exercise is that you don't get attached to it, that you understand that it is impermanent and that you can't have a fixed schedule where every day at 8 a.m., for example, you might decide that you're going to exercise. Because if you had that fixed schedule and you were craving that permanence, when you miss your workout, you're probably going to be grumpy and irritable. And you might use that as an excuse to go around and be irritable. Yeah, I didn't get my workout today. I, I feel so bad. Well, that's 
the mind being attached to the exercise. Whereas if you understand that it's impermanent and you maybe decide I'm going to work out three days a week or I'm going to work out two days a week or I'm going to work out, you know, as I can throughout my week, then this is a mind that isn't attached to the exercise and that they understand that, okay, I need to exercise in order to maintain the physical health of the body, but I'm not craving it, desiring it, attached to it. Whereas if I don't get it, then the mind's going to be discontent. And then in addition to that, you need to understand that there can be pleasant feelings that arise, that when I get my workout, then I get all these pleasant feelings. And there might even be arrogance or pride or ego associated with this. People might even work out so much that they look down on other people who aren't working out. And this wouldn't be wise either. So if you're choosing physical exercise for your practice, and that's what you would like to do, then do that for yourself and do it in a way that you practice non-attachment. But in terms of what other people do, that's their choice. So you can surely exercise and still attain enlightenment, but just be sure that you don't have craving, desire, attachment to the exercise, but you instead do it as part of your life, but you don't allow the mind to experience these conditioned, pleasant feelings when you're exercising and you feel good, And then when you're not exercising, that's an excuse to be grumpy, so to speak, or irritable, because that's just a conditioned feeling conditioned on this impermanent thing, which is the exercise. Number eight is medicine and medical procedures for the body an attachment. It's important to understand that the attachment isn't the object itself. So you can't really say that medicine is an attachment or it isn't an attachment. And you can't say that a medical procedure is an attachment or it isn't an attachment. This bottle of water could be an attachment if somebody allowed it to be. So it's not the actual object itself, it's the way that the mind relates to it. So we know that we need water in order to stay alive in this life. If we didn't drink water, we would surely die. But where the attachment comes in, the craving-desire attachment is how the mind relates to this. Remember, a craving-desire attachment is a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. So if you're thirsty and you know that you need to drink water, it's like, okay, I need to drink water. Let me drink some water. But if you were like, oh my goodness, I need to drink water. Give me that water right away. I'm going to die if I don't drink water. This is an extreme craving, right? This is where the mind is attached. So it's not the water itself. One person can drink water and be completely content and peaceful and know that it's needed for life and just kind of gradually drink water throughout their day. But another person could also have a craving for this water and become discontent when they don't have water or become discontent when they have water, have these pleasant feelings. So same thing with medicine and medical procedures is that there's certain medicines that you might need in order to take care of the physical body, in order to ensure there's health. But there can also be certain medicines that the mind becomes attached to. A common example of this is if you've taken painkillers in the past and you had a real legitimate medical reason for taking those painkillers and you needed those for a period of time and then that medical situation is over but the mind becomes addicted to that medicine and now it's taking it as a stimulant and it's now attached it now has this craving so in both scenarios 
the medicine was being taken at one time for pain relief because it was a medical need, but later it developed into this craving desire attachment. So it's not the medicine itself, it's how the mind relates to it. Same thing with a medical procedure. You could have a medical procedure to do anything that you need to do to the physical body to maintain the health. And this can be needed, it's something that's needed. But then a person could have a certain craving or a certain desire or this attachment and perhaps pursue certain medical interventions that aren't necessarily needed for health, but are just something that the mind craves. I think about something like a plastic surgery that is only cosmetically related. So if somebody would like to do something like Botox or a facelift or something like this in order to revert aging, maybe the mind is uncomfortable with the impermanence of the physical body and we start injecting Botox or having plastic surgeries in order to have our appearance look a certain way. This person isn't bad, they haven't done anything wrong, that's their choice, that's what they're choosing to do. But this can be from craving desire attachment in the mind, craving permanent youthfulness. And that particular medical procedure could be a potential for craving desire attachment. But you could also have somebody that needs a certain nose surgery in order to be able to breathe. And without this nose surgery, they wouldn't be able to easily breathe. And this is a medical procedure that some people might do as a cosmetic thing. Another person might do it for a medical need. So it's not the actual medicine or the medical procedure itself that is the attachment. It's how the mind is processing this or relating to it that determines whether it's a craving desire attachment or not. And if you're having challenges to understand whether something you're considering is a craving desire attachment, that's where you reach out to your teacher and you ask for guidance, you ask for help. And then we're able to kind of ask you questions to help uncover whether certain things are a attachment or not. This number nine is what significance can I apply to dreams? This is a thing that will come up occasionally. People have a certain dream, then they go out trying to find the significance of this dream. You know, they might have dreamed certain things. You know, there's all kinds of things that the mind can dream. And now the mind is trying to figure out what's the significance of this. This is really degrading to the mind in terms of it can move the mind closer and closer to delusion because We experience these things in our sleep that we have these dreams and now we feel like there must be some significance. It's almost like the ego kicks in wanting there to be a significance. And now there's this craving, there's this desire, there's this want of going out and figuring out, you know, what is the significance of this dream? Well, different people are going to tell you different things. You talk to five different people, you're probably going to get five different answers. And typically somebody will keep asking the question until they get the answer that they're looking for. When somebody gives them an answer that they feel good about, they're like, all right, I got the answer. Now I know the significance of the dream. But these five people, who's to say what a significance of a dream is or what it isn't? If you have dreams, then they're not true reality. It's not what's actually happening in this life. What's happening in this life and what's going to affect you in this life is the decisions that you make on a day-to-day basis. 
through things like your intentions, speech, and actions. When you're making decisions in this life about things that you're doing in the world, that's what's going to impact you and have a significance. It's going to have some significance in your life when you're practicing right intention, right speech, right action. That's going to improve your life. When you're practicing wrong intention, wrong speech, and wrong action, that's going to cause challenges in your life. But these dreams that you have while you're sleeping, this isn't going to impact your life unless you allow it to impact your life. This is just the mind doing what the mind does. The mind is very creative. It has all this power, all this ability, and it can make you feel that things that you experienced in your dreams are real and they're really not. With that said, you can have certain dreams and you can awake from those dreams and it can give you insight into how you feel. So for example, if you're having dreams where you've died, for example, and you wake up and you're very scared because of these dreams that you had about death, this helps you to see that your mind is still craving existence, that you're not comfortable with death because there's this fear of death that maybe the mind was exposed to your death during the dream, which wasn't real. But then when you woke up, there was this fear. There was this insecurity that you are wanting to hold on to this world. This is where you can get the real benefit out of your dream. You don't need to go out and consult with other people unless you talk to your teacher about how these dreams might help you on this path. We can talk about that because what dreams can sometimes do is they can expose certain craving desire attachments that you have. So if you're having regular dreams of your death and you're regularly waking up scared and fearful of that, then that means you need to do some work to train the mind to let go and no longer fear death. Or if you're having regular dreams about one of your family members dying and you're waking up being scared and fearful about their death, then this shows that you have an attachment to that individual and you need to work on that and release the craving desire attachment to that person. If you've had people in your life that have died and you're having regular recurring dreams of them and you're waking up with those dreams, that means the mind is still craving, still attached to that person and you need to do the work to let that go. These are the types of things that you can really benefit and you can really glean from your dreams. If you're having dreams that you're becoming rich and wealthy and you know so successful and you wake up and you really revel in that and you really have all these pleasant feelings because of that, it can show that there's craving desire attachment to things like wealth or fame or fortune and things like this. So this is how you might choose to process your dreams is understanding how the mind feels about them when you awake and what does it expose in terms of your craving in terms of any anger, you can wake up angry from dreams. And what does it expose in terms of ignorance? Because that's the real goal. The real purpose of life is to attain enlightenment if we approach it that way, right? If we have this goal, this objective, this interest to attain enlightenment, well, any kind of insight that comes to us about the mind when we wake up from a dream in terms of helping us eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance, then let's use that to our benefit rather than running out and trying to feel this conceit or this arrogance or this pride, this significance about our dreams. And, you know, look how significant we are. I dreamed this thing. And that means that in the future, I'm going to be so rich and wealthy. That's not a mind that's in the present moment and looking to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So 
I would suggest that if you have dreams and you remember dreams, that you look at them in terms of how the mind is experiencing those and what discontentedness might be arising, either pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, and then investigate the cravings that are causing that so that you can eliminate it. That's how you can really use your dreams to your advantage. Number 10 is why is enlightenment permanent? So when you learn the universal truth of impermanence, I share that nothing in the world is permanent. And what I mean by in the world is this book is in the world. It's not permanent. This mug is in the world. It's not permanent. The job that you have, the occupation that you have, it's in the world. It's impermanent. The relationships that you have, those are things that are in the world. They're impermanent. But the Buddha never said that everything is impermanent. What he said is all conditioned things or all conditioned objects are impermanent. And what a conditioned object is, is it something that arises, something that changes, and something that fades away. So for example, this book is a conditioned object. At one time, it did not exist. So it arose. And how it arose is somebody went out and created this paper. It was put together at some company. There was ink that put on this pages. It was delivered. So this book arose and then it changes. There's little bins in the front cover. There's some discoloration on the pages. As somebody reads this book and flips the pages, they will start to deteriorate over time. So it's changing. And then at some point it will fade away. It will deteriorate. It will no longer exist. So this book is a conditioned object. It arose, it changes, and then it fades away. Same thing with any kind of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. The mind has these conditioned happiness, this conditioned excitement, this conditioned euphoria. It's conditioned on some uh, object or some experience. There's some impermanent thing that is causing this pleasant feeling to arise in the mind. That feeling is arising, it changes, and then it fades away. It's a conditioned feeling. Same thing with painful feelings. They're conditioned on something that you lost your job. So now there's sadness or sorrow or anger. That sadness, sorrow, and anger, it arose, it's going to change, and then it's going to fade away. That's a conditioned feeling. So an unenlightened mind is going to experience these conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. They're going to have feelings that arise, they're going to change, and then they're going to fade away. Because an unenlightened mind is basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. Because this feeling can't be permanent in the unenlightened mind when it's basing it on some impermanent condition. So if I have happiness because I got a new job, that new job is not permanent. So therefore this happiness can't be permanent. So if I base my inner feeling on this impermanent condition of the job, then it's only a matter of time before that happiness fades away because this job is not permanent. And then when I lose my job and I become sad or angered or frustrated, that is a feeling, a conditioned painful feeling that is based on this condition of losing the job. 
and that feeling arose, it changed and it fade away, that can't be a permanent feeling because it's based on some impermanent condition. So this is what the unenlightened mind experiences is these ups and downs and ups and downs because it's basing its inner feelings on some condition. And there's all types of different conditions that the unenlightened mind is basing its inner feelings on. An enlightened mind is unconditioned, meaning it's removed all the conditions that are causing these conditioned feelings. So it's no longer experiencing these ups and downs and ups and downs because the condition of craving, desire, attachment has been eliminated from the mind. The enlightened mind is no longer basing its inner feelings on the condition that I got a new job or the condition that I lost my job because an enlightened mind already knows that these things are impermanent. And if it allows the mind to hold on to it, it's only a matter of time before there's discontentedness that's in the mind. So an enlightened mind, they might get a new job and they're like, all right, I got a new job. Let me work at this job. Let me do my best. Let me ensure that I fulfill the responsibilities that I need to fulfill. I'm going to do this job. And then they apply effort and energy to doing that job. And then at some point when that job's over, okay, this job's over. Time to move on. Because an enlightened being already knows that that job isn't permanent, so they're not going to allow their mind to grab onto it. So they're not going to experience pleasant feelings when they get a new job, and they're not going to experience painful feelings when they lose their job. Instead, their mind is just going to remain peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy all the time. They're going to experience joy when they have a job and they're employed and they're working. They're going to experience joy. And then when they're not working and they're not actually doing some kind of occupation, maybe they're in between jobs, they're still going to have joy during that time. Instead of being angry or frustrated or irritated during that time of unemployment, they're still going to have joy in the mind. So an enlightened being is going to have this permanent mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because the mind is unconditioned. There's no longer conditions that are causing conditioned feelings. Instead, they wake up all day long and go to bed peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. There's nothing that's going to shake up the mind of an enlightened being. This enlightened mind is permanent because all the conditions that are causing the discontentedness has been removed. One of the easy ways to think about it is an enlightened being is never going to be in a bad mood. There's never a situation where an enlightened being is going to be in a bad mood because all those conditions have been removed. So the mind is permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. This is the difference between a conditioned mind and an unconditioned mind. So all conditioned objects are impermanent, but unconditional things are permanent. This is why the enlightened mind can be permanent. This is also why you can have permanent love. If you practice unconditional love, that's permanent. Where conditional love, which isn't really truly love, that's not permanent. What we describe as love is part of chapter 15 when I talked about true love. We talked about how what we think about as love in the unenlightened mind is really craving, desire, attachment. Whereas if you do these things, I will love you. 
but when you stop doing those things, I don't love you anymore. That's not actually love. That's craving, desire, attachment. That's why people say they fall in love and they fall out of love. What's actually really happening is they're falling in craving and they're falling out of craving. They're craving, 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 wanting somebody to do certain things. And as long as you meet all my cravings, I will say that I love you. And as soon as you stop meeting all my expectations and my cravings, now I'm going to say I don't love you anymore because you're not meeting my expectations. But if you have unconditional love, this is permanent because you didn't have to do anything for me to fall in love with you. I just love you because you're a human being. I just love you because I love you. So therefore, since you didn't have to do anything to earn my love, there's nothing you can do in order for me to stop loving you. So something like true love, unconditional love, is actually permanent as well. So an enlightened mind can function in a way that everything's permanent. The peace, the joy, the love that they feel for other beings, the kindness, the politeness, the respect that they afford other people, the compassion they have, the equanimity, all the different qualities of mind of an enlightened being is permanent. You'll never see an enlightened being be grumpy. You'll never see an enlightened being talk harsh to somebody. Their mind just can't do it because it's been trained so well that it's impossible for an enlightened being to experience anger. It's impossible for them to speak harshly to somebody. It's impossible for them to use profanity. It's impossible for them to pick up a cigarette and start smoking. It's impossible for an enlightened being to drink alcohol because they've already seen the wisdom that all of these things lead to discontentedness and harm in the world. And they know that wisdom so well that they just are choosing not to do those things ever, ever, ever again. So the mind and the mental states that they're experiencing is permanent because they've removed craving anger and ignorance. And now they're functioning through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And these are permanent aspects of the mind that are now motivating and encouraging this individual to do whatever they're going to choose to do in the world. So enlightenment is permanent once it's experienced. Once somebody's mind moves to this enlightened mental state and they have that wisdom, they're never going to be like, you know, I really liked when I was angry. Let me start being angry again. Or I really liked it when I was arrogant and all that ego and I was talking down on people and I was judging people and people were judging me. An enlightened being, their mind's never going to revert back to that. It's not possible for them to do that. So this mental state is permanent because they've already seen the truth. They have too much wisdom. It's not possible for their mind to ever revert back to being unenlightened ever again. Number 11, why are donations of support for teachers of Gautama Buddha's teachings so important? There's two aspects to understand here in terms of this. The first one is that in order to see these teachings continue in the world, there needs to be support of these teachings. There's people like ordained practitioners and household practitioners like me that have chosen to dedicate our life to sharing these teachings in the world. And there's some people who might do that for a period of time and then step away from it as well. But nonetheless, these teachings are coming into the world through people's time, effort, energy, and resources to share these teachings in the world. And people are choosing to no longer have a career and pursue their own desire in terms of what they might want as a career. They're choosing instead to 
spend time, effort, energy, and resources to share these teachings into the world. So the only way that we see the continuation of Gautama Buddha's teachings in the world is if there's support for them to continue. And for over 2,500 years, there's been support. And this is the reason why the teachings continue in the world. And as more people choose to support these teachings through supporting a teacher and different ways to support these teachings in the world, then these teachings will continue. So a lot of people are interested in seeing the world become a better and better place. And the way that we accomplish that is that each individual person needs to choose to learn and practice these teachings in order to improve the condition of the mind. So if these teachings are available through generous donations of students to organizations or to people that are sharing these teachings, then these teachings can continue and we'll see the continuation of these teachings in the world. But if we don't support these teachings, then they're not going to continue in the world. And anybody who's sharing these teachings, there's going to be time, effort, energy, and resources that that person needs to expend in order to share these teachings. They wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. It doesn't mean that a teacher is sharing these teachings to get donations. It means that they need donations in order to share these teachings. So for example, in my situation, when I was a business person, I was making a lot more money than I will ever make as part of sharing these teachings. You can make a whole lot more money going through being a business person than sharing these teachings. If somebody was sharing these teachings in order to make money, then they're doing it the wrong way because you're not looking to make money in order to share these teachings. That's not the goal. A person who's sharing these teachings should be just interested in essentially sustaining their life through food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care, and having enough supplies in order to purchase the things that they need. Like in my case, you know, lights or a microphone or a computer or Zoom or a website or all the different software that I use in order to reach out to the community and make these teachings available. So there's going to be time, effort, energy, and resources that are needed by a teacher in order to share these teachings into the world. So it's important that students decide on their own at whatever point in time that they choose to do so is to support these teachings if they feel that they're benefiting them and it's something that is helping them and they would like these teachings to be available for others. Your support helps ensure the teachings are available for people after you. The reason why you're receiving these teachings now is because for 2,500 years, people have been gradually supporting these teachings. So people have supported these teachings, which now make these teachings available for you. And by you choosing to support these teachings, you're helping to make these teachings available for the next people that are coming. And that's how we all kind of pay it forward, so to speak. This is a, a term that people use nowadays, that you're paying it forward. People essentially provided donations in order for these teachings to be available for you. And then if you're receiving benefit from the teachings, then you might choose to make offerings to support these teachings so that they're available for other people after you. In doing so, we get to this second point, which is in order to get to enlightenment, an individual will need to practice generosity. This is what leads to enlightenment. 
Without practicing generosity, a person would not be able to experience enlightenment. And what generosity is all about, just to remind you from earlier parts in our program, is it's the giving and sharing of something without any expectation of anything in return. And that's what it means to practice generosity. We need to do that in all parts of our life, offering and sharing and giving our time, effort, energy, and resources. But specifically, we also need to find ways to support these teachings so that they can continue. And by practicing generosity, it leads to our own enlightenment because it helps to eliminate craving, desire, attachment the mind holding on to things tightly. And oftentimes, one of the things that we hold on to the most tight is our wealth and the resources that we acquire. We're kind of conditioned in society that if I pay something for $5, I should get something of equal or higher value for the $5. And that's the way our mind is conditioned, that I'm giving $10 or I'm giving $100 Therefore, I should get something of equal or higher value. And we look at that as a way of building up our life. And oftentimes the mind can become very selfish in doing so. But in order to get to enlightenment, you're going to need to also have another aspect of your practice that sure, there's going to be situations where you work and you make money and you purchase things and you need this thing to be of equal or higher value for sure. There are certain aspects of our life that we need to do that. But there's also certain parts of your life where you're going to need to, in order to get to enlightenment, practice in such a way that you're offering your time, effort, energy, and resources without any expectation of anything in return. This will help you to eliminate selfishness and selfish desires. That if your mind has this craving that every time I spend money, I'm going to get something of equal or higher value, This is craving permanence. You need to see the impermanence of that and understand that that's just going to create selfishness in the mind and you can't experience enlightenment as long as there's selfishness there. So by practicing generosity, it'll train the mind to let go and you'll be able to experience enlightenment as part of this. And you'll also see the continuation of the teachings of the Buddha that by you sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources, you're essentially acknowledging on a certain level that these teachings have been very helpful for you. And as you progress on this path throughout the years and months and so forth, and you're making various offerings to support these teachings in the world, then you're acknowledging on a certain level that, yeah, these teachings have been very impactful for me, which helps to eliminate one of the fetters in the mind. The second fetter is the fetter of doubt which is doubt about the Buddha, the teachings, the community, your teacher, and your own ability to attain enlightenment. So if you still have doubt whether these teachings are actually helpful or not, then you probably haven't learned and practiced them close enough to see the improvement to the condition of the mind. So if you're holding on to your wealth, then there's that craving there. There's not this interest in seeing these teachings continue because maybe you haven't yet experience the benefit yet. And that's perhaps because you might not be learning and practicing close enough to see that benefit and see that improvement. So by us making offerings and helping these teachings continue in the world, they're available for other people. It leads to our own enlightenment through practicing generosity, eliminating selfishness. 
And it also helps to eliminate any doubt that somebody might have about the teachings because they're seeing that by supporting these teachings that that's an important thing to do and that that ultimately is because of the erosion of any kind of doubt in the mind whether these teachings are actually helpful or going to be beneficial to your life. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about anything we shared on 6 through 11. On Zoom, I have a question. She writes, how does one advise an appropriate middle path for an adolescent to help them understand the difference between reaching professional academic goals versus curbing their own need to find a greater purpose in their life? If you're going to guide an adolescent in understanding, pursuing things in life, they'll need to understand how to pursue things as a goal, an objective, or an interest rather than through craving desire attachment. And the way that we are typically functioning in the world before we learn this path is our decisions are all motivated by craving, anger, and ignorance. And this is why we experience so many difficulties and so many struggles in the world. So we can have this interest, this goal, this objective to be this certain career or this certain occupation, go through educational experiences like college, university, go have this profession. We can do all of that with a goal, objective, and an interest. And we'll be much more successful at that than if we have craving, desire, attachment. So somebody needs to understand what craving, desire, attachment is and how to pursue things as goals, objective, and interest. That's what will be most successful. Well, you, you mentioned now that uh, most or maybe all our uh, actions are based on cravings. So if one is reflecting on their uh, daily life, most likely all the decisions that are made during the day are out of craving. If we're off this path before we understand these, this path, a significant amount of our decisions are craving, anger, and ignorance. I wouldn't say all because that would be permanence, but a significant portion of our decisions are typically based in craving, anger, and ignorance. And this is why we experience so many struggles and difficulties in our life. But then once we start learning this path and we start transforming the mind, and now we start functioning in different ways, then there's this kind of transitionary period for multiple years where we're moving away from craving anger and ignorance because we're bringing that down and we start increasing our generosity, loving kindness and wisdom. And this is where we see the shift in the mind. The condition of the mind gradually improves and what we experience in life gradually improves because we're no longer functioning through so much craving anger and ignorance but instead, we're starting to make decisions through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And this is where we'll see better results for the condition of the mind and our life. Thanks, teacher. Let's go to Nick. Thank you, Boston. Teacher David, if, if craving, desire, attachment is a poison, is generosity the antidote? And what would you say about things like being generous towards the retreat? Yeah, so craving, desire, attachment is a poison or an unwholesome root or one of the three fires. This is the cause of discontentedness. It's also the cause of rebirth, like we were just talking about. So a significant portion of this path to enlightenment is all about eliminating craving, desire, attachment. And we use breathing mindfulness meditation 
And we also use generosity as generalized trainings. And then back in chapter 12, and I think it was 13, I started sharing with you some other ways to ensure that you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment. But that breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity is the generalized training that a practitioner should always be practicing. When the Buddha talked about what's called the way of practice, essentially the way of practice is how a practitioner is practicing towards enlightenment on an ongoing, daily, consistent basis. He talked about generosity, moral conduct, and meditation. These are essentially the three things that a practitioner is doing on the path to enlightenment on a regular, consistent, ongoing basis. You're regularly, daily practicing generosity, sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources. And then you're regularly, on a daily basis, practicing moral conduct, that right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then you're regularly, daily, consistently practicing meditation. This is what we call the way of practice generosity, moral conduct, and meditation. So if you're going to practice these on a regular, consistent, ongoing basis, then you would be looking for ways to practice generosity. And in some cases, it might be something like what Nick's asking about, which is perhaps sharing donations with certain things to help the continuation of these teachings in the world, like the retreat that we have coming up in the USA. If you're going to that retreat, you might decide to provide a donation. If you're not going to that retreat, you might decide to provide a donation as a way of not expecting anything in return and just making an offering that will help the continuation of the teachings. This isn't something you're required to do, something that somebody expects for you to do or would force you to do, but it may be a way that you choose to practice. And there's other ways to practice generosity as well, and that's just one opportunity and one way to do that. Teacher David, would you say it's wise? What if someone's only being generous to their inner circle, like just their family? I mean, should they, if they're trying to attain enlightenment, trying to attain a higher consciousness, would you say they should focus on, you know, being generous to others in the world, to strangers, things, things of this nature? Yes, this is part of not having any expectation of anything in return. You know, if you're only being generous to your children and your life partner and your family members. Okay, that's great. That might be a place where you start, but you really would like to move your generosity to the point where you can give and share to anybody and everybody. And you've got to find the middle with that as well, right? Like if you were always giving your time, effort, energy, and resources, and you were depleting your own ability to sustain your life, that wouldn't be wise. It wouldn't be helpful. But also if you were never being generous and you were just holding on to everything tightly for yourself, that wouldn't be wise either. That's not going to lead to your enlightenment. So you need to find this middle way where you can practice in a way where you're giving and sharing with others without any expectation of anything in return. Before I really understood this path uh, to the level of detail that I understand it now, when I was a business person, we were making about sixty dollars to $80,000 per month in the business that I had created. And I was regularly giving donations to the temple. And I wasn't even going to that temple. I had relationships with people at the temple, particularly the leader of the temple. They would come occasionally to our school and they would share teachings with the students that were there. 
but I was giving about $1,000, sometimes $2,000 a month to this temple, but I wasn't even receiving any benefit in terms of going there and receiving teachings or anything. But I just felt like I was in this community. We were making money. The community was supporting the work that we were doing. So let me share some of that with the temple. But I also found ways to help local schools and disabled people and other charities that were in the community. I would find different ways to help and give things like gift certificates because we had a massage business and a massage school. So we would give gift certificates for like a silent auction so that a school could do fundraising for that. Or, you know, we would give away free massages to people. We would do different charity events and things like this. So you can find ways as a business person or whatever lifestyle that you have to share with other people. And this will be really beneficial to the mind that you're not holding on and just trying to fulfill your own selfish desires. Thank you, Teacher David. We have a question from Susan on YouTube. She asks, I would like to attend the retreat in Washington, D.C. Is that a craving? How do I know the difference? Well, if there's craving, there would be discontentedness if you couldn't go. Or if you did go, there would be all this excitement. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you would be wrong to go to a retreat just because there's craving. Because remember, there's two ways to extinguish a craving. You can just extinguish it through breathing mindfulness, meditation, generosity, cutting it off, letting it go, all of that stuff. But you can also fulfill it. And then that also helps to extinguish the craving. So if you're really excited to go to this retreat, it doesn't mean that you're wrong or you're doing something unwholesome. You would like to eliminate that craving so that you can just go and experience and enjoy the retreat and learn from it so that you don't have these arisen pleasant feelings. Because if you allow the craving to exist and there's this arisen pleasant feelings, then if something should happen between now and then and you can't go, then that means there's going to be painful feelings. So it doesn't mean that you avoid going because you're not interested in having these pleasant feelings or these painful feelings, oftentimes what you would like to do is you would like to do these things and learn how to do them as a goal, an objective or interest. So learning how to restrain the mind. So if you feel the mind lurching forward and longing to go to this retreat and these pleasant feelings arising, then when you see that with mindfulness, then you restrain the mind and you pull it back. You can still go to the retreat, but just pull the mind back and don't allow it to pull towards the retreat, but instead just pursue it as a goal, an objective, and an interest. Then if you should happen to have something where you can't go for some reason, then you won't experience the painful feelings because of it. So this is the same thing that if you have a certain craving to go to your child's performance at their school, you might be getting so excited to go to their performance and you see these pleasant feelings arise. It doesn't mean you don't go to their performance at the school. It means that you restrain the mind and you pull it back and you observe that you may be able to go to their performance at school or you may not be able to go. So let me just make wise decisions towards my goal, towards my objective, towards my interest. I'm going to head in that direction and I'm going to try to make that happen. But if for some reason it doesn't happen, then I can be perfectly content with that as well. And this is how you train the mind to no longer function through craving, desire, attachment. You can't just avoid these things and then the cravings go away. 
that would be aversion. Instead, you need to learn how to function in the world and make decisions where you do go to events, but without craving desire attachment. Thanks, Isha. There is no more question for now. Okay, so the next thing that I would like to share with you that's towards the back of this book is how to determine if you've attained enlightenment. The first one is that I would like to share is never stop practicing the teachings. You should never, ever, ever stop practicing these teachings. So if you actually try to determine that you're enlightened and you're like, all right, I'm enlightened, so I'm going to stop practicing now. The mind's not enlightened because an enlightened being is not going to stop practicing something like loving kindness or right speech or right action. So if you're going to approach this and try to determine if you have attained enlightenment, you should never stop practicing the teachings. That's the first thing to understand. The second thing to understand along this line is self-observation of whether you've attained enlightenment is fraught with errors. Once somebody attains enlightenment, they know that they've attained enlightenment. But oftentimes the ego is there trying to tell you that you're more enlightened than you really are and trying to convince you all along that you are enlightened. When in reality, there's still arrogance and pride there because the ego is like this bad tenant. It doesn't want to leave. So if the ego can convince you that you're enlightened and you don't evict the ego and you don't kick it out, then it can stick around. It can still be there. So the ego is going to be there all the way until it's not. It's going to be there and continue to try to convince you that you're enlightened and like, yeah, you're enlightened. You're so much better than everybody else. Look how enlightened you are. Yeah, you're so peaceful. Everyone else is suffering. Ah, look at you. You're the man. You're the woman. You're so great, right? So don't allow the ego to do that and understand that self-assessment of enlightenment while an enlightened being knows that they're enlightened. I don't suggest that you ever really convince the mind that you are enlightened. Even when you're not experiencing discontentedness for three months or six months, you can't really say that the mind's enlightened yet because you can easily have some residual discontentedness that springs back up in the mind or arises in the mind. It's not until you experience like a year or two or three with no discontentedness whatsoever that you could say in your own mind, yeah, your mind's probably enlightened at that point. But at that point, all the arrogance and egos out. So it's not like you're going to go around and tell everybody that you are enlightened. One of the easiest ways to know somebody's not enlightened is they're going to go around telling people they are enlightened. If somebody's going around telling everyone that they are enlightened, they're looking for this admiration. They have this craving for other people to know they're enlightened. And why would you do that? Why would you go around unless there's arrogance or pride in the mind? And if there's arrogance and pride in the mind, then the person can't be enlightened. So if you or other people are having this craving desire to go around and tell people you're enlightened, you're not yet enlightened. An enlightened being is experiencing such peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. They don't need other people to know that they're enlightened. They're just enjoying the fruits of their labor, the fruits of the work that they put so much time, effort, energy, and resources into, they're just going to go through life continuing to experience that peaceful mind. So these are some beginning things to think about in terms of determining if you're enlightened or not. In terms of how to determine if you are enlightened is that you would be fully practicing the Eightfold Path, which includes the Four Noble Truths and the Five Precepts. You would know that path inside, outside, backwards, forwards, left, right. 
you would be able to explain it with ease if somebody says, hey, what is right intention? You'd be able to just rattle it right off. Or if somebody's like, what is right livelihood? You'd be able to just explain it so easily because you have deeply learned it, you've deeply reflected on it, and you're deeply practicing it, having moved your practice to all the eight steps of the Eightfold Path. You would understand not only the Eightfold Path, but the Four Noble Truths and the Five Precepts because through your own direct experience, you've learned, reflected, and practicing it so deeply that you would be able to easily explain it. You would have what's called right wisdom. So that's a very good indicator that your mind is moving towards enlightenment or it is enlightened, is that you're fully practicing the Eightfold Path and these other teachings. When you've attained enlightenment as an arahant, which is that fourth stage of enlightenment, we consider that person to be an enlightened being, you will have eliminated all the 10 fetters. So these 10 pollutions of mind, the 10 fetters that are in chapter three, all of those would be eliminated from the mind. You would understand what each of those 10 fetters are and how to eliminate them because you did it. So therefore you would know those inside and out and they would have all been eliminated from the mind. A practitioner who is enlightened will have completely cultivated and are practicing what's called the Brahma-viharas. This is in chapter 14 that we covered there. That's the loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These would be well-established in the mind and easily practiced. So in that chapter, I talked about what the Brahma-viharas are, and I also talked about what they are antidoting or what they're fixing. So for example, sympathetic joy is having joy for others' success whether you contributed to it or not. So if you're experiencing jealousy, then you know you're not practicing sympathetic joy, so therefore the mind's not enlightened. Or let's say equanimity is calmness and composure, evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations. So if your mind is shaken up or uncalm, then you know you're not practicing equanimity, so the mind can't be enlightened. So an enlightened being is gonna be deeply practicing those four Brahma-viharas. And then number five is an enlightened being is going to be fully practicing the seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors of enlightenment aren't to determine if you are enlightened or you aren't enlightened. These are actually tools to fine tune the mind, but an enlightened being is going to deeply understand what those seven factors of enlightenment are, and they're actually going to be practicing all of them at one time. Up until the point that the mind is nearing to enlightenment, you're going to be using different portions of the seven factors of enlightenment, depending if the mind is sluggish or depending if the mind is excited. You're going to be practicing a different grouping of these seven factors at different times in order to move the mind to the middle. But once the mind is in the middle and it's firmly rooted there, as an enlightened being would experience, they're going to be practicing all seven factors all the time. So you'll see that as part of progressing to enlightenment. And then number six, the most telltale sign of whether your mind is actually enlightened or not is that you will no longer be experiencing any discontentedness whatsoever. So all of those conditioned feelings will all be eliminated. So you won't be experiencing conditioned happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. If somebody says, hey, I'm going to come over and visit you today. If you're like, oh, great, I'm so looking forward to seeing you. Oh, my goodness, you're coming. Yay. This is a conditioned feeling, right? This is excitement based on the condition that someone's coming. 
Well, what happens when they call you an hour later and like, oh, I can't come. I need to take my wife to the hospital. Oh, now I'm experiencing this condition, painful feeling, right? So that's what the unenlightened mind is going to do. An enlightened mind is like, oh, you're coming over to see me? Great. Looking forward to seeing you. We'll see you when you get here. Oh, you can't come now? Okay, I understand. No worries. We'll see you next time, right? That's what an enlightened being is going to do. They're going to be completely peaceful and fine either way with every single situation that occurs because their mind isn't going to cling or grasp to any particular thing. So when that thing doesn't occur, their mind isn't going to experience these painful feelings. So the way that you eliminate the painful feelings is you have to restrain the mind when you feel it moving to those pleasant feelings. So if somebody's telling you that I am going to come see you today, or I'm giving you a new job, or I'm increasing your salary, or whatever it is, you just accept, appreciate, be thankful, you know, have gratitude, whatever it is that you're going to practice in that moment. But don't allow the mind to move to those pleasant feelings. Those conditioned pleasant feelings are going to always lead to painful feelings at some point. So you need to restrain the mind and pull it back, keeping it in the middle. And then you can experience this permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. As long as the mind is holding on to this temporary happiness, you won't be able to experience this permanent joy. So an enlightened being isn't going to be experiencing these ups and downs and ups and downs. And as you progress, you should see the diminishing of that where the highs aren't as high, the lows aren't as low, and there's this diminishing and diminishing and diminishing until the mind moves into this elongated period of time where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And you'll get glimpses at enlightenment along the way. It might be a couple of days or a couple of hours or a couple of weeks or even a couple of months where it feels like the light is on and you can see what enlightenment is like and you can feel it and you can observe like, wow, the mind has been so peaceful for a certain number of hours or a certain number of weeks or days or months. But then there's going to be some discontentedness that comes back in. And this can even happen after three months or six months or so. So that's why I say you should experience a year, two or three where there's no discontentedness whatsoever. And the mind is just residing unshakable, peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy, very steady, very calm. And then you'll know that, okay, the mind's probably enlightened, but I'm just still going to wash dishes. I'm still going to go to work. I'm still going to take a shower. I'm still going to brush the teeth. There's nobody that comes out with the certificate or an award and say, okay, you're enlightened now. Here's your award. And then you get to walk across the stage and hold it up over your head. You don't get to do that with enlightenment because this is your own journey. The reward is that you no longer experience discontentedness. And that's enough of a reward that you'll be very pleased with that. That an enlightened being isn't going to feel like they need to be boastful and walk across the stage with a certificate over their head to prove that they're enlightened. Instead, you're just going to continue to enjoy this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that you worked so hard to experience. And other people aren't going to necessarily know that you're enlightened and you won't have a desire for them to know you're enlightened. You'll just experience the benefits of your labor and the work that you put in to progress to this point with the mind. So what questions do you guys have on this? That's good, Onike. Thank you, Basim. Amina has a question on Facebook. She writes, for point number six, 
you will know for yourself you have attained enlightenment because you will have eliminated 100% of discontentedness from the mind. She asks, if discontentedness is removed from the mind for a short period of time, one would have to go months or even years without any attachment returning to experience true enlightenment, correct? Therefore, it is best to continue to, to ensure the progress on the path continues steady and sure, yes? Yes, this is 100% correct. One of the things that can happen when you're getting those glimpses of what enlightenment is like is if you experience a couple of weeks or a couple of months of peacefulness, the mind can get attached and cling to that peacefulness. And now when the mind experiences that discontentedness after three months, it's like, oh, you become discontent because you're discontent because the mind was clinging to the peacefulness. So you can't even cling to the peacefulness. You can't even crave the peacefulness. You can't even crave enlightenment. If you crave enlightenment, you're not going to experience it. So you need to get to the point where you're just gradually working towards the goal, the objective or interest of enlightenment without craving it. So when you observe the peacefulness come into the mind, that's why I suggest that you don't convince yourself you're enlightened. You just play, all right, hmm, the mind's peaceful. That's great. These teachings go exactly where the Buddha said they do. They lead exactly where he said they do. And just be confident and know that that's the case. But don't revel in that. Don't take this great pleasure in that. Like, wow, look at me. I'm so peaceful. It's just so amazing. The Buddha's teachings are so uh, real. I can't imagine 2,500 years ago he taught and here I am experiencing exactly what he experienced. Oh, this is just so amazing because that's a conditioned pleasant feeling and it's only a matter of time before that doesn't exist anymore. So in order to get to that permanent peacefulness, you can't even cling to the peacefulness. Just know it's there. Be observant of it. This is where I share like standing out naked in the middle of your street and the sun is shining on you and you're like ah okay the sun's shining oh that's nice okay but then it starts raining and it's like oh okay it's raining i'm getting all wet okay so obviously you're not going to go out in the middle of your street naked but you understand the analogy that you're just completely naked everything's completely removed there's no conditioning the mind is unconditioned you're completely content standing in the sunshine you're completely content standing in the rain. Either way, nothing bothers the mind. And in this situation, you can then experience more and more of the enlightened mind. And then also, one of the other benefits of not convincing yourself that you're enlightened is once you've eliminated all that discontentedness and now the mind is enlightened, you've gone through a multiple year journey of learning, reflecting, and practicing gaining this wisdom. Now the world's your oyster, so to speak. You could do anything because you now no longer experience any discontentedness and you've gone through this process of learning, reflecting, and practicing. If you would like to be an airplane pilot or an engineer, or you would like to start a business, or you would like to start a daycare, or you would like to do amazing artwork or record music or whatever it is that you're interested in doing, any new skill, any new wisdom that you would like to acquire, you're completely prepared for that because now you're functioning through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. Where before, when you were trying to do those things, 
you still had craving, anger, and ignorance, and it was very hard for you to accomplish certain things in your life, where now, with all that stuff removed, you can really accomplish anything in life that you set your mind to. One of the ways that I describe enlightenment is it's like basically preparing you for the rest of your life. So once you actually eliminate all that pollution of mind and the mind is experiencing enlightenment, that's the beginning of the rest of your life. And now you really get to enjoy the rest of this life. Because now if you attain enlightenment at age 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, 60, whatever, you get to enjoy the rest of the life without all this misery and heartache. And the world is such an amazing, beautiful, wonderful place when you can experience it without discontentedness. Sir, in the past, uh, you've heard many jujitsu analogies from me uh, and comparing. Um, would you, is it safe to say that this path to enlightenment is much like a training regimen? Only the only difference is, you know, athletes train the body, but this is just training the mind. Like we have a blueprint. There's the program, and we just you know follow the program. That is the path. The answer is yes, but also remember that path is unique to each individual. It's not a regimen, so to speak, where it's you know, one, two, three, it's not like connecting the dots where you might need more help with the Brahma Viharas. And there's a lot of work that you need to do there where somebody else might need to do a lot of work with something like generosity or something like this, where generosity might come really easy to you. Maybe equanimity is more of a challenge for you. So different parts of this path will challenge people in different ways. And that is similar to martial arts, but typically with martial arts, there's kind of like a fixed regimen that people go through where this, I don't think of it as being as fixed, but there is a certain template, like you say, or a certain blueprint that we know like, okay, this is what needs to occur in order for the mind to experience enlightenment. But the journey and how somebody navigates that and what they prioritize as being first, second, or third is going to be unique and different to each individual. The sequencing of those things. That makes sense. Uh, it's very much like jujitsu, um, but martial arts are more fixed. Um, appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Yeah, and we also don't get to wear blue belts and purple belts and black belts. <laughs> well, on Zoom, Chris has a question. He writes, living amidst the pandemic, how do we balance fear of illness and maintaining safety? Okay, so if there's fear of illness, this is the mind craving, desiring permanent health and also craving potentially existence in the world. So there's ways to remedy this. And Chris, you haven't been through the entire group learning program yet. You kind of started, you know, about a month or two, three ago. And, um, when we start from the beginning and we go through, I'm going to slowly build you up step by step. This aspect of the mind to confront death and understand the impermanence of this existence and the permanence of the physical body. This is part of what you learn as you build up more and more. There's specific things that I can teach you. If that's something you would like to approach now, you're welcome to schedule personal guidance. And I can help you understand how to train the mind to let go and no longer crave existence and permanent health. Because you need to find the middle with this too. Whereas if we're craving permanent health and existence, 
that's going to lead to discontentedness. But also if we're complacent and we don't do anything to make wise choices in terms of our health and in terms of our existence, that's not going to be wise and helpful either. So we've got to find this middle way where in a situation like the pandemic, we maybe wear a mask, we maybe get a vaccine, we maybe don't spend as much time around public settings or a large number of people. You know, we take these precautions, but we don't do it out of fear. We do it out of a wise decision, that this is a wise decision based on my health, based on what I know about this physical body and what this physical body needs. Let me choose to do these things, which is going to be wise and prudent for me in a situation where there's something like a pandemic in the world. But if we operate through fear, then the mind is being shaken up and it's going to experience that discontentedness. And oftentimes when there's fear, we're not going to be making wise decisions because the mind's shaken up. So finding that middle where there's not craving, but there's also not this complacency or indifference, but we find those wise decisions. And in order to do that, we need to eliminate the craving for existence. We need to eliminate craving for permanent health. And there's techniques to help you do that, that you can schedule a personal guidance and I'll help you with that. Thanks, teacher. No more questions for now. All right. So I just have a few more things as we wrap up the group learning program, even though we're going to have another class next Sunday. There's a few things towards the end of the book that I would like to just share with you in class today in case you haven't got to that point or maybe you have questions about what you've read if you've actually read the book already. This is a part where the Buddha is actually leading towards his death. In this book series, I share a few chapters in volume two and some other volumes where it actually helps you to understand the Buddha's death and how he died and some of the teachings he was delivering around the end of his life. This is one of those teachings that the Buddha was actually delivering towards the end of his life because he knew three months before he was going to die, he knew that he was going to die. That's how enlightened he is or he was is that he knew he was about to die and he let people know that he was going to die. This was very wise of him because it allowed people to more gradually let him go. So after he had taught for 45 years, one of the things that he said to the ordained practitioners is this, wonder forth, O monks, for the welfare of the multitude, for the peace of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the good welfare and peacefulness of heavenly beings and humans. Teach, O monks, the teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing. Reveal the perfectly complete and purified holy life. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are falling away because they do not hear the teachings. There will be those who will understand the teachings. So here the Buddha is talking in this first paragraph about how this multitude of people will benefit from these teachings. And through having compassion for the world, as you learn these teachings, you might at some point in the future decide that you would like to share them in some way or another. And that's out of compassion, concern for the misfortune of others. But we don't do that with craving, desire, attachment. And it's for the peacefulness of these heavenly beings and human beings, because as we learn these teachings more and more, the mind experiences this peacefulness. And if you choose to share these teachings, the Buddha says that we should share them good at the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end with the right meaning and phrasing. This is really, really important. 
what he's sharing here is that in these talks that a teacher gives, we shouldn't start off really good and then kind of fizzle out towards the middle and end. It should be good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. We should maintain our focus. We should have concentration as we share these teachings and deliver these teachings. This helps the students to stay engaged and stay involved, stay active in the actual learning. And the way that you do that is have the correct or the right meaning and phrasing. There are certain words that we use in terms of sharing these teachings. And if you read this book series, 1 through 13, you'll see the way that the Buddha talks. And he uses very specific words and phrasing. And if you use some of that same words and phrasing, then you're using the proper or the right words and phrasing. And this is really important for the continuation of the teachings. If we are kind of complacent in the way that we share these teachings, and we don't really use the most accurate words and phrasing, then the teachings lose their meaning. And over time, people get further and further away from the teachings because they don't understand what the clear path is because the teachings aren't being delivered with the proper meaning and phrasing. So having good word choice in the way that we share the teachings and making sure that our talks are good at the beginning, middle, and end will ensure the longevity in the continuation of these teachings. And then revealing this perfectly complete and purified holy life because there are beings with very little dust in their eyes. So if you think about sleeping and that when you wake up, you have a little bit of sand or dust or we call it sleepies in English, some people. This is what the Buddha is talking about because when the mind's in the darkness and it's unawakened, the mind is sleeping. But there's people who are fairly well-developed in this path, even without having ever studied the Buddhist teachings. People can learn these things in other ways because they're the natural laws of existence. So there's beings with very little dust in their eyes that with learning a little bit of these teachings, maybe a year or two or three, they can pretty much get to enlightenment you know, fairly readily because they just need some guidance to really understand the true teachings. And the Buddha is saying, you know, there's beings that are falling away, meaning, you know, being reborn into the lower realms and continuing to experience discontentedness over and over and over again. So he's saying there's people in the world that will understand these teachings and that it's okay to wander about and share these teachings. But you should only do that when somebody's asking for guidance or they're choosing to learn. You shouldn't feel like you're required to go out and share these teachings with anybody. But if there's people who are in your life that you feel could benefit from these teachings, you might share a little bit of it with them or give them a gift of sending them a link to this book or giving them this book. That might be something that you choose to do or not, but do that without craving desire attachment. This is a quote that I have at the end of the book that I put and it's actually quite fitting for nowadays, but this is something that I wrote about three years ago. And the quote is, the only war worth waging is the war within the mind. Win that war and you have won everything. So if you think about this pollution of mind, this craving, anger, and ignorance as kind of like a war within the mind, essentially the only war worth really waging is that war any other war in the world, it's only going to lead to destruction and harm 
we can see that very clearly today because there's been so many wars over the course of human history that war only leads to further destruction. It doesn't lead to peace. But this war within the mind, this leads to peace. And once you win that war, you've won everything because the mind's going to be so peaceful. So I suggest that anybody who's interested in waging war, focus on the war within their own mind. That's where a being can win everything. And then a few quotes that the Buddha was sharing as he was getting close to his death, and he kind of alerted people three months ahead that he was actually going to die. There were students of his that weren't all the way enlightened, and they were some of them were attached to him. And these students, a very close student of his, Ananda, which was his cousin, was pleading with the Buddha not to die. This was an individual who had been studying with the Buddha for 45 years, and his entire career of learning uh, was with the Buddha from the very beginning. And when the Buddha alerted people that he was going to be dying in three months, his close student Ananda was essentially holding on and pleading with the Buddha not to die. And the Buddha eventually gets to a point where he's like, enough with that, you know, <laughs> like, like be done with that. And he says, you know, one who sees the teachings sees me. One who sees me sees the teachings. And what he was saying in this moment, and he says it very clearly as he expands on this, is he says, you know, you don't need this body to be here with you. That for over 45 years, he had shared these teachings. These teachings were well known to his close students that had attained enlightenment. And there was no need for this physical body to continue to exist because this physical body is impermanent and there needed to be death. And what he was saying is, is that if you see the teachings, meaning if you'd learn the teachings close enough and you can see the teachings in the world, then you see me. You don't need this physical body. So if you've learned the universal truth of impermanence and you're walking down the street and you see a really nice sidewalk and then you see a crack, that's impermanence. You see the teachings, you see the Buddha, you know he existed. If you are outside and it's sunny and then a cloud blocks the sun and now it's dark, that's impermanence. You see the teachings, you see me. You see somebody craving and so angry and fearful and raging. You see craving, anger, and ignorance. You see the teachings, you see me. You know that this man lived. The more that you learn the teachings, these natural laws of existence, you see them in the world everywhere around you. So therefore, you see the Buddha. There's no doubt for someone who learns these teachings deeply. There's no doubt that this man lived because as you progress and see the mind continually improve to enlightenment, then you can see the teachings everywhere around you and you know with 100% certainty that this man lived because you see the teachings everywhere around you. You walk down the street, you see a fence that's painted really, really nicely. And then you see another portion of the fence where the paint is fading. This is impermanence. This is the paint fading. There's the Buddha, right? If you see the teachings, you see the Buddha. And then one who sees me sees the teachings. What this means is essentially he practices what he preaches. If you were in existence during the lifetime of a Buddha, a Buddha is a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. They never deviate from their teachings because their mind is enlightened. Their mind is experiencing this permanent mental state. So one who sees me sees the teachings. One who sees the Buddha during his lifetime 
they saw the teachings. He was the deepest practitioner of these teachings during his lifetime. So if you live during the lifetime of a Buddha, you're getting a living, breathing, walking example of what these teachings are like and how you can practice them in the world. And therefore, you don't need the physical body of the Buddha or a teacher to exist in the world permanently. That's impossible. But once you understand the teachings, you see me. And once you see me, you're seeing the teachings. There's this perfect example from a Buddha of how to practice these teachings in the world. And then lastly, I'll just share the very last words of the Buddha that he shared right before his death. These are his very last words to Ananda. He says, Ananda, it may be that you will think the teacher's instructions has ceased. Now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this, Ananda, for what I have taught and explained to you as teachings and discipline will, at my passing, be your teacher. Now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. So he was teaching all the way till his last breath. That's essentially what a Buddha is going to do, is when they awaken to enlightenment, they're going to start teaching. They teach the remaining time of their life. And even at their last breath, they're still teaching. So his last teaching is essentially the beginning of the path. Because the beginning of the path is you need to learn the universal truth of impermanence, this constant change, that there isn't this fixed state of these conditioned objects. So he says, now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. That's impermanence. He's talking about impermanence. Strive on untiringly, meaning don't become complacent. Keep going forward. Keep working towards your enlightenment. Keep pursuing the goal, objective, and interest to attain enlightenment. And then he died. And he died of old age. There's a lot of different rumors and myths about why the Buddha died. You'll hear all kinds of different silly things. Some people say he died from food poisoning or he ate a poisonous sandwich because he didn't want somebody else to die. But if he knew that there was a poisonous sandwich, why would he just throw it away? Why would he commit suicide by eating a poisonous sandwich? If you look in the actual teachings, it doesn't say anything about this. This is myth and folklore, what people share. He actually knew three months before he was going to die. He alerted people to that. You can see the words of that in this book series where he let people know three months ahead. And then when he actually died, he said these words, helping people know that he didn't need to continue, that they understood the teachings. And that's what's really going to lead to their enlightenment, that they didn't need this body anymore. Even a Buddha is subject to impermanence. A Buddha is not going to live forever. And by the time a Buddha dies, there's going to be some people who are enlightened and completely see that as normal and no grief whatsoever. And then there's going to be people that aren't quite enlightened yet. They may be attached to the Buddha and they're going to cry and they're going to sob and they're going to be upset. And part of the way to eliminate attachment is to extinguish it in this way. So sometimes we can extinguish attachments until somebody dies. So Ananda actually never attained enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha. It wasn't until after the Buddha's death that he actually attained enlightenment. And I suspect 
One of the reasons why is because he was attached to the Buddha. You can see this very clearly in the teachings based on the way Ananda interacted with the Buddha. So this is the very last content that's part of the book. There's other things there that I didn't include in today's class. So I suggest that you read all the way through to the end of the book. And there's a lot of detail there that I'm not able to cover in our two hour classes. But I would like to just open up and see if there's any remaining questions that you guys might have as a result of the things that I just shared. Well, I'm not seeing any question, Fisher, but uh, I was wondering about uh, the clothes that Gautama Buddha is wearing here in this picture. Uh, I think this is different from what we see monks are wearing now, right? Yeah, so this picture, that's interesting. I, I never took a moment to notice that. They expose the right shoulder with their robe. They drape it across the body and the right shoulder is exposed. Uh, the reason why is because during the lifetime of the Buddha, royalty would wear clothing and they would expose their right shoulder. That was a sign of being noble. And as you have learned, some of you, as I talk about what is a noble disciple during the lifetime of the Buddha and how he kind of recast nobility during his life, that during the lifetime of the Buddha, people thought that whatever family you were born into, that determined whether you were noble or not. But the Buddha said, no, it's not about where you're born. It's about your actions and how you conduct yourself in the world through your moral conduct. You can actually be born into a poor, impoverished family and still be noble if you train your mind and you develop this wisdom, this moral conduct, and this mental discipline. So the monks expose their right shoulder as a way of the Buddha helping them to see that they are noble, even living this aesthetic lifestyle of being homeless. So I'm not sure why they drew the picture this way, whether this is the description, because I know that this picture was commissioned based on the description in the Pali Canon, uh, but I'm surprised now that you pointed out that it doesn't show the exposed shoulder. Perhaps this is what was described, or maybe the artist did this for some other reason. I'm not sure. Thanks, teacher. That's all for today. All right. Well, in next Sunday's class, we're going to be discussing the five hindrances to enlightenment. This will be almost our last class. We will have that Sunday, and then we will have that Wednesday, which will be loving kindness meditation. And then we're also going to have another Sunday after that where we're going to have a class where you guys can ask me any questions that you like. We titled this Getting to Know the Teacher. This is going to be two Sundays from now that students oftentimes have various questions about the teacher's life, you know, their childhood, their adult life, you know, what they experienced in life, what led them to where they are today in life. And students asked for this at different times and about two years ago, we did a class like this, so we thought it would be a good idea to do another one of those classes. So on the 3rd of April, we're going to do that class where you can ask any and all questions that you like. I'm not going to actually be sharing anything. It's just going to be, hello, welcome, pleased that you're here. What questions do you guys have? And then you guys can ask any questions that you like. So we've got a few more classes here leading towards the end of this program. And then we're going to restart everything on the 6th of April from the very beginning. And we'll go through and I'll have the whole program laid out for you on that day and explaining to you from the very beginning how to build up your practice. But since this is getting close to the time of the end of our classes, I would like to just pause for a moment and thank all of you for your dedication and your diligence to learning and practicing these teachings. 
whether you have just joined recently or you've been part of this program all the way through, I would like to thank you for all your effort and energy for learning and practicing these teachings. If you would like to restart the program, you can restart and continue on and keep learning. There's also the Polycanon in English study group, which meets on Saturdays that you can join into that program as well. If you've offered any kind of time, effort, energy, or resources to support these teachings, I want to thank you as well for the moderators. Of course, you guys have done an outstanding job throughout the program, helping and supporting and encouraging the work that we're doing here. The community has really appreciated your service and your donation of time, effort, and energy. If you've been offering donations at any point to help me to provide basic necessities for my life and to provide resources to do things like have Zoom and be able to have lights and microphones and all the other resources that I use in order to support these teachings in the world. I would like to thank you for your continued support. I really appreciate and have an enormous amount of gratitude for all the time, effort, energy, and resources that our community has pulled together in order to be able to offer these teachings in the world. So I'd just like to thank all of you and welcome you to continue to learn and progress, whether it's in the group learning program or the Polycanon and English study group, and also enjoying all the different resources that are being made available to you at no cost, whether that's the books, audiobooks, videos, podcasts, the personal guidance, the retreats, the classes, the courses, all the different things that are offered here for you, you can just decide, you know, where is the best way for you to learn and progress because all of these things are being offered for you to help you continue to learn and grow and make your way to the enlightened mind. So thank you all for your generosity and support as I share these teachings with all of you. So I'll see you guys either next Sunday or perhaps this Wednesday or some other class along the way. Have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.